Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. This week, Judy is chatting with Annie Segarra, also known as Annie Eleni, who is a queer, Latinx, and disabled American YouTuber, artist, and activist for LGBTQ and disability rights. Annie has shared so much of their life online, from their journey to being diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome after misdiagnosis and mistreatment from medical professionals, as well as their journey with body dysmorphia and self-love as a queer, disabled person. Through the art of storytelling, Annie has cultivated an authentic online community where they share moments of heartache and moments of them dancing on a stool to show tunes. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Becca Howell, and Judy Human. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best. And let's meet our guest today. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. And I am, guess who, Judy Human. I am really excited today. We're talking with Annie Cigar. And I had the opportunity to begin to get to know Annie last year. So Annie, you know, what has drawn me to you is the expansiveness of who you are. And for me, uh, one of the aspects that I really value is your interest in telling stories. What made you begin many years ago like at least 11 or 12, um, you can correct me if it was longer, to be pulled into telling your story and pulling other people's stories out. What do you find powerful about storytelling? Oh my goodness. Well, first I have to say that I, I'm, I literally uh, am glossy eyed and honored by what you just said. Um, I, I'm so honored to, to, to share these conversations with you and just honored by like <laughs> everything that you just said about me. Like I'm really, really touched. Um, and um, I feel the same way about you. I, I feel like you're such an incredible person again. So I'm going to repeat myself the third time. Just so honored to have these conversations with you. Mutual fan clubs. <laughs> but to answer your question, the, the age that I think I started focusing on storytelling, I was 15 and I'm 30 now. So about 15 years, I've been like documenting things in a video format on YouTube and prior to that, I'm sure a lot of writing, <laughs> um, but yeah, storytelling has always been my favorite way to communicate myself um, and to record things, remember things, uh, which is something that's very important to me. Um, I don't have the, the best memory, so I constantly uh, am looking to record my observations and my thoughts, record the things that happen around me, kind of like my own little historian. I just want to, I just want to keep things as much as I can, even to the extent that like to this day, I have um, a gratitude journal where every day I try to do at least three bullet points of, um, I try to lean toward things that I feel grateful for that day, that happened that day as, as small as like oh today I hung out with my mom in her bedroom and we watched a Harry Potter marathon and I I do that with the idea in mind that like years later I can like look through this journal and like 
those little memories will bring joy back into <laughs> into my day. And so aside from the very beneficial mental health aspect and and being able to recall things that I've experienced back to storytelling as a form of communication and being able to share in these experiences with people who share similar experiences with me and that so that would be mostly my communities of people who share in community-centered experiences. That would be the LGBT community, the Latino community, the disability community. And so these are part of like very core identities, but we could extend that even further to like theater community, et cetera. But like, these are like core to like my um, identity, things that are never going to change about me, you know? So I, I do try to like storytell in a way that creates a sort of solidarity with my community. And this, I feel like being able to, to do that, being able to share similar experiences, A, it's representation. So it, it allows people to kind of exhale when they can, when they can see themselves in someone else's experiences. It's like, ha, huh, I'm not so isolated in what I experienced. This is an experience that is common in my community. And that's something that is really a source of comfort. And then there's an, aside from representation and relatability, then you have B, which is um, the ability to kind of create this sort of mentor mentee relationship with other people. Not that I consider myself a mentor mentor because I'm still, I'm constantly learning, but there are things that we can learn from one another. I find that a lot whenever I share things about my experiences that a lot of people will respond to it with. I never considered that that was an option for me. An example I can think of off the top of my head is back when I first started using a wheelchair, I was using a very cheap, like hospital style manual wheelchair. Yeah, like the, the 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 not custom one, like just the, mm-hmm. the standard manual wheelchair. And the way that they have those is um, your footrests are separated. So every time you sit down in the wheelchair, it feels like you're at a gynecology appointment. Very unflattering. Um, so my uh, solution to that was to remove the, the leg rests and put some kind of scarf um, on the bottom and it created this foot hammock so I could like rest my two feet and and also stim and also like swing my feet uh, in this little foot hammock on, on the manual wheelchair and so many people were looking for solutions to that exact uh, experience which again is like it's not something that happens outside of disability community it's just <laughs> people who are who are using manual wheelchairs um, who haven't been able to get uh, the privilege yet to get themselves a custom wheelchair and are looking for some form of comfort. And that was not only comfort, but also a playful aesthetic because you could get whatever kind of pa- pattern on, on, the, on the foot hammock too. So things like that. People do mentor each other in the non-disability community. I believe that one of the issues is we haven't necessarily been exposed enough to each other. And because we have so many different types of disabilities, mm-hmm. so we can come together as a disability community, as a culture. But when it gets down to certain specific issues like 
what to do about your foot pedals, for example, then there's a really narrower audience that you're going to be looking for. And I was um, talking with a person, younger person today, and you know, realizing that one of the issues for many younger people in particular, but also others who are acquiring their disabilities later in life, that there is this absence of people knowing people that they can just talk to and just become friends with. And in discussion, say, oh, you know, this is an issue I'm dealing with and get ideas from them and back and forth. So it seems to me that we're always mentoring each other. Yeah. And life experience, I think, can allow people to have more experiences to discuss. Yes. So for me, storytelling is very personal. And you have in your storytelling one that you write things down in a book, so they're just yours. But then you also have done talking in schools. Um, for example, around uh, dysphoria. And I'm wondering, um, and you started doing that earlier. How did, why did you find that an important subject to discuss? And how did you raise it uh, with, what was, the, what was the age group that you started talking with? Why was it important to you? And how do you feel it was beneficial possibly to you as well as to the people you were talking to? Um, well, dysmorphia, uh, which, uh, which shortened for like body dysmorphic disorder, which is what I experienced past tense and still presently, like it's always, you know, a potential trigger in the back of my brain um, is something that was intertwined with eating disorder that I experienced a lot of my life. And I would say the dysmorphia that I experienced probably started between the ages of 10 and 12 and continued. And it was a, a trauma response to uh, a, abuse that I experienced as a child. And um, midway through college, I hit kind of a rock bottom with my mental health. And to the extent that I had to leave my college program to focus on my mental health. And I went through eating disorder recovery and um, treatment for, well, self-treatment because I, I didn't have the economic privilege to like go to therapy, but I, I had to like diligently work on it myself and self-treat for body dysmorphia. And at some point, I think probably uh, when I was 20 years old, um, I hit a really beautiful euphoric place with my mental health. I, I have a very vivid memory of waking up one day um, and looking in the mirror and just kind of being able to exhale and just be in awe, just be wowed at the realization of where my brain was at that moment. I, I looked in the mirror and said, wow, I don't hate myself today. <laughs> And in that realization, I just, I, I just became really euphoric and I wanted so badly to share that with people, not, I say share that with people. And I don't mean that in some kind of self-serving way. I wanted to share that with people in the fashion of this is possible. 
And I had an immense, and I still do have immense empathy for people who are experiencing similar mental health issues, especially because I was not aware that it was a mental health issue in the first place. I think a lot of people experience intrusive thoughts, especially when it comes to things like eating disorders. Um, and they do not question them in their minds, just like as it was for me, it, it was just the brain telling us facts. Intrusive thoughts like, you, if you didn't exist in this space, things would be better off and, and other dark things like that. They went unquestioned. And so I just had immense empathy for people who dealt with intrusive thoughts like that and never questioned them. And so that started that started my efforts into talking about body image online because I wanted people to start questioning them because I, I wanted it better for people. I, 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 wanted, I wanted people to understand that intrusive thoughts are intrusive thoughts and not facts and that there was hope for them to not be in as such of a dark place anymore. So from, from there, I, start, I started um, my old uh, blog called Stop Hating Your Body, where people could submit their stories and, and share where they were on their body image journeys. And a lot of them were success stories as well. Like I, I, I worked on my mental health and now I feel so much better about myself. And some people were in the midst of their journeys. And from there, I started getting invited to talk to college students about, it was very specific. It was telling my story about being a child with dysmorphia and what those intrusive thoughts were like. And, and what was the moment that I started questioning those intrusive thoughts and my process as to how I started to overcome that and, and better my mental health. And you were a great role model for others, I'm sure, because it sounds to me like the discussions you were having were enabling people to really learn about some of these issues in a nitty gritty way. And you weren't asking people to share their story but if it was something they wanted to talk about, either in the group or privately, um, I presume that you were giving people permission and also validation. Yeah, I think that like myself, people wanted the opportunity to be able to share their stories. I think people often want to share their stories. Like I said, there's, there's such a catharticism of sharing these parts of yourself, especially in hopes that your story is going to plant the seed for people. I think that a lot of people tell their stories, again, not as a self-serving thing. People want to share their stories because they hope that their story is going to help somebody else. And you have many different disabilities. And I think they've maybe uncovered themselves slowly. They didn't just all come at the same time. And so maybe you could speak a little bit more about important aspects of other parts of the disabilities you have and how you pull it together. Because at the end of the day, you present yourself as you and the various disabilities are a part of you. How have you been able to meld that together over time? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I, I took a deep inhale there. It's just so much to process in these like times. Like when you, when you said that, multifaceted person the thing that happened that was painful in my body was like yeah I wish society could see that <laughs> 
instead of uh, especially especially when when disability is such a big part of the dialogue that I participate in online there's like this like one dimensional image that is created. So the title that I fall under all the time is just like disability advocate. And, and so sometimes I can feel very one dimensional. I never would ever describe <laughs> you as one dimensional. I was watching a YouTube that you did with Lolo and I loved it. And I loved it because it was so engaging and natural and spontaneous. And I was, they were talking about issues of being able to walk and use wheelchairs. And I don't walk, I just use a wheelchair, but why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think what I related to in that part of the discussion was people's wanting to give you suggestions about things like don't become dependent on the wheelchair. Yeah, what a yikes. Um, <laughs> I think you got to start from the very beginning, which is why people have such a difficulty digesting, processing that ambulatory wheelchair users exist. Ambulatory wheelchair users being wheelchair users who are able to ambulate, to walk or stand or, or do a number of things that you don't, a lot of people don't assume uh, wheelchair users are able to do, uh, including run or dance or jump or anything. A lot of people assume that if one uses a wheelchair, it equates to immobile, because um, even like, I, I, I used to just say equals paralyzed, but even paralyzed has a fluidity to it. It's not, it's not completely immobile, but people believe that wheelchair equates to your legs cannot move and you cannot move. And anything outside of that gets accused of faking. And that is a antagonization that I experience. And it's a very common harassment that ambulatory wheelchair users experience. And it can, it can escalate to violence as well. I also think it really means that people don't trust, don't trust us. So mm -hmm. the ability to walk sometimes short distances, long distances, to be able to lift something up, not be able to lift something up, depending on the angle that you're able to do things. There's so many variables. And a lot of times people are like in your face. Like if you can do that, well, that means you can do this. And why are you asking me for this when I saw you do that? And it's very, um, it's harassment and it's painful. Yes. And it's a very weird conversation to have because um, you, you said they don't trust us as in disabled people, but in their minds, they're like, so you're not disabled. You are faking being a disability. So, so in their minds, it's not going to uh, click that they are not trusting of disabled people. They're just saying, you are not disabled. You are a liar, you are a faker. Um, so it, it, it's, it is a really weird conversation to have because again, it kind of like the root of it is a huge representation issue where like every time you see in a movie or uh, very specifically in a novella uh, where a wheelchair user gets out of their wheelchair, it's met with um, this big 
dramatic fanfare of like dun 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 they were faking the whole time oh my god this is the the disabled villain or the quasi disabled villain but we never get to see almost never there's like a couple of little occasions where um and by little i mean in quantity and sometimes just like small moments in media where we do get to see an ambulatory wheelchair user but that's so rare. And some people, if you ask them, they'll say they've never seen it before in their lives. So that's, that's really tough. I, this, I, I talk about it a lot because it's part of my daily experience being afraid of harassment for something like that. Like every time, cause I, I'm able to walk around my house. Okay. Because if I ever, if ever the, a big part of the reason I use a wheelchair is pain. I cannot handle being up on my feet for long periods of time. So I will, I, I will walk around my home a, a couple minutes at a time. And even so, even like if I am walking around my home, there's a lot of like leaning that I'm doing, or I'll lift my leg up and rest my knee on a chair or on a bed or whatever. Like I'll, I'll be doing a lot of discreet things to alleviate the pressure off my legs. Uh, and then if my legs cannot handle being up anymore, I'm in my home, so there will be somewhere that I can sit down nearby. I can even be in my backyard for, for a little bit. And people don't understand the little details that like go into our disabilities. Like my backyard is okay because I'm familiar with the ground. I'm familiar with like where the holes are, where the hills are. Uh, I know where everything is so I can care for my body in that space but asking me to go to a random grassy patch, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna lose my ankle in some random hole. I'm gonna lose my ankle or my knee in some random hill that I did not realize was there. Um, so familiarity is a big part of accessibility for me, as well as ha having a plethora of places to sit. And to circle back to what I was saying about my daily experience with fear as an ambulatory wheelchair user is even though I can, walk in small spaces like my home or my small backyard I have to use a wheelchair to walk my dog every day and sometimes like if I have to pick up some business and it's like down a hill in a grassy area I'm like oops I may have to get up out of my chair to go get it every time I even consider getting out of my wheelchair in public terrified terrified that some neighbor who only knows me as the person who uses a wheelchair to walk their dog from outside their window can witness me get out of my wheelchair and then it becomes some kind of neighborhood scandal that uh, there's some kind of faker person who, who uses a wheelchair to walk their dog. I mean, you know, we think about it as a scandal. It could likely be that, <laughs> but it could also be, oh, I didn't know that, you know, Annie could walk and use a wheelchair also. So it might be non-judgmental, but I completely agree with you that the first- yeah, I'm not so optimistic about that. <laughs> yeah, that the first place you go, because so many people are like that, is to think that people are thinking something negative, that you're a faker. Well, history, history has told me mm -hmm. that. History told me that, like, that, like, um, that the first thing people will, will think is faker um, or something scammer. It's just some, um, just not, yeah, scammer, um, probably faking disability for money, whatever. Um, yeah, so much money. Disabled people have so much money. Hashtag sarcasm. No.
What brings you joy? <laughs> what brings me joy? Ah, uh, Lordy, that is a existential question right now. <laughs> yes, especially after what we've been discussing. So I can think of things that bring me comfort to and, and a scale to joy. Like we have like a comfort to joy scale. And so these things bring me a feeling that is on the spectrum, on the linear spectrum of like comfort to joy. And those would be um, some of my special interests like theater and musicals, places of nostalgia and accessibility like Disney World, my dog. What <laughs> um, kind of dog do you have? My dog is like a bully mix pitbull mix uh dog she's her name is bailey and she likes cinderella disney cinderella a lot and like sings along to cinderella music that's the only thing she sings along to so maybe she's a reincarnation of that voice actress <laughs> that's the only thing she sings i don't those are my like purely like selfish indulgent joys and comforts is is things like that is and oh yeah, yeah, just creativity, art in general. I was thinking of like this Van Gogh exhibit that I experienced, which is like um projections of Van Gogh's art with like this very like soothing, almost meditation style music playing in the background. So these projections made you feel like you were inside the artwork with this like very soothing music. And I was like, this is my sensory heaven. I could just like sit in here all day. So gorgeous, calming sensory stimulus also makes me very happy. <laughs> this is Pride Month. And I'm wondering, have you been involved in any activities? For Pride, we're already in the middle of Pride Month, huh? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I'm proud every day. So that's a very internal pride <laughs> experience. I uh, really felt good about bringing up the dialogue about marriage equality earlier this month. I've created a post about like, we celebrate marriage equality in the US, but the conversation needs to expand to what the phrase marriage equality fails to include, which is the, the disabled community and how there we don't really have marriage equality as of yet. <laughs> And that was, that was a funny conversation because somebody accused it of derailing the pride conversation. I said, you don't think LGBT disabled people exist? <laughs> you, know, you know, like there's two problems with an accusation of derailing, which is A, I am a gay disabled person. So I'm part of both these dialogues. And two, we're talking about a phrase that gets thrown around, which is marriage equality and an acknowledgement that it doesn't actually exist yet. So disabled community is part of this conversation. There is no derailing that has occurred. But that's a common opinion and, and response to whenever we want to talk about intersections like being LGBT and disabled at the same time, is that who said we're talking about disabled people? We're talking about LGBT people. I'm like, do you... Do, 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 do? So maybe we could use this as an example, but also broaden the question. And that is, have you seen more progress, more people understanding that you can be from the LGBTQ community and also have a disability? I don't know that I would say in a general way, I feel that way. I, th I can only speak to really my personal circles. My personal circles are filled with people at that intersection, people who are LGBT, 
and disabled at the same time. That, that is like uh, almost my entire social circle. Um, mm -hmm. We've somehow found each other very luckily. But it shouldn't be that uncommon to, to say. I always feel like a lot of people really isolate and try to kind of minoritize. I just made up a word, <laughs> that community, make it a smaller community than it is because I think, don't quote me on it, but I believe CDC said that one third of people who identify as LGBT plus are also disabled. That's one third. That's a lot. Um, at least. <laughs> at least. At least. Exactly. At least because there's definitely people who are undiagnosed or don't even identify as disabled uh, as of yet because that's, that's, that's a whole nother conversation is about the identity of being disabled and taking that on. What, what, a, what a conversation that is because I, in, in my process, I've been disabled my whole life, but didn't really have the language for it, didn't have diagnosis didn't didn't understand that my physical experiences and my neurological experiences were not quote unquote normal so i just try to survive in the best ways that i knew how but a good example of that is like pain is that i was in chronic pain of so much of my life the the biggest pain flare i can recall at my youngest was age 13 i would literally throw myself onto the floor trying to, I don't know, align my spine because my back would be in so much pain. And I felt like something was out of place, which is probably some kind of subluxation. And by instinct, I was like, let me try to slam my back into the floor and try to fix my joint just by instinct. So, so these are disabled ass experiences, <laughs> but without a name. And so it wasn't until like, I think maybe when I was 24 and I was having a conversation about how like I was exhibiting so much chronic pain that I was no longer able to stand up for more than a minute or so. And in order to like advocate for myself in medical spaces, I had to try to clarify, this is not an able-bodied experience to, to let, not be able to stand up for a minute or so. A friend of mine in that self-advocacy confronted me with the phrase, but Annie, you're not able-bodied. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that was kind of shocking to hear. So, and from that moment, it, it was, wow, it was just kind of a, an eye-opener or, or an awakening of like, oh, I've been identifying with the wrong group <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> And uh, so that's what I mean by like, just kind of discovering the language, not even because I was un undiagnosed at the time. So it doesn't take a diagnosis to identify with disabled, but it, it, there is for so many people, if they're never given the language for it, right? Um, it, it's, it's hard to come across it yourself. I think maybe another issue is when you have multiple disabilities like you and others do, you kind of fit into many different categories. Mm -hmm. And I think you very clearly stated that disability is very important for you. That is a large part of your identity and all of the different types of disabilities you have impact you in a different way. But your public persona is partly, I am a proud disabled person. And that you really, because of your 
exquisite way of being able to storytell. I think that's really also very important. So you can help other people think about who they are. And I think being able to tell your story to yourself is the first thing that you need to be able to do, not only to share it with others, but also when trying to get diagnosis or treatment or whatever it may be, you need to feel centered in your body that you know what you're talking about, that we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then I think we can determine whether or not the people we're interacting with take us seriously and are willing to listen. And everybody is different. Yeah. I would like you, because you're coming towards the end of this discussion, to talk about what your vision is for the future, what you, for yourself and for others, you believe we need to be doing to continue to open up dialogue across many different communities, both to strengthen who we are in our movement, but then also to really develop closer relationships with others who I think fear us, fear becoming us. Oh, that's so heavy. (laughs) Yeah, and that's a part of the emotional labor that exists for me every day as a person that storytells about these things on the internet and like share so much of themselves on the internet. It's rough. I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been thinking about, you know, what is, aside from what we've talked about, where my intentions have been to share things from a cathartic place, as well as a, as a place of service, where I can create solidarity with my community, representation for my community, and offer some kind of mentorship from the things that I have learned, whether um, from other disabled folks, like when I started talking more about like internet accessibility, or from my own experiences, like the foot hammock on on my manual wheelchair. Um, So there's a big, there's a big part of that that's, you know, it comes from a place of service for my community. There's also a part of that work that I feel kind of tragic about. It's uh, that attempts to humanize disabled community and in effect myself, which is something that is very like emotionally heavy to like, kind of like take a step back and look at my work and my presence online and think sometimes it feels like I'm figuratively begging people outside of my community to consider me as a, as a, as a part, as a part of society and to humanize me <laughs> instead of see me as like a one dimensional checkbox in, in, in regards to diversity. So I would, my, my vision for in the, the long-term and just I'm thinking like for the world, which is, which is, <laughs> I was glad that you clarified for yourself and for the masses. Cause I was like, which one <laughs> when you, when you first asked for me or for the whole of humanity and for the whole of humanity, <laughs> I, uh, I hope that the disabled folks like myself don't have to feel that way. Don't have to exist in don't have to live in an existence where we feel like we're figuratively begging for consideration. But don't you really feel 
now I'm talking about you personally, and maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is that you have enough strength within yourself that you're really not begging anymore. I think what you're really, what you're really saying for me and tear it apart is you want to be accepted for who you are. You want people to not look at you and label you and characterize you in a way that you're not. But I do feel that you can come back against people who are doing that. And don't you feel that you're stronger than you were 10 years ago or am I all wet on that? <laughs> um, I mean, absolutely. In a lot of ways. Um, yeah. I'm, not that I, it's not painful. Yeah. I, that, that's, that's the, uh, the nuance of it and the multiple layers of it, I think is that like, you know, strength doesn't mean pain-free. <laughs> Um, so, so, and sometimes that pain gets to a very exhausting place. Um, and, uh, I think I was actually talking about this in therapy yesterday and it it was, there was a good takeaway where I was talking about the exhaustion of that, of the like constant emotional labor that I feel like the examples that I said earlier on about like people neglecting disabled community because they're like Shh, no disabled people right now we're talking about lgbt plus people right now i'm like excuse me yes we are we are we are part of that community <laughs> um and so the like the erasure like that yeah it's painful like i can be strong as heck and i can i can bounce back but ouch like the the repeated erasure is really painful and the, the erasure, the mocking, there, there's so much antagonization that happens on the internet that like, that's where I've been of like, I, this doesn't make me happy. It does not make me happy to, to come on the internet every day and emotionally brace myself for the masses of antagonization that I'm going to experience. This just kind of intersects with like uh, the collective trauma of the pandemic and how this is this is what I realized uh, in my last session. So it, it's a it's a good takeaway. So I want to share it because in case anybody else feels uh, similarly, that kind of thing is going to be exhausting, period, like pandemic, no pandemic. It's exhausting to, to come into a space and constantly feel antagonized. However, we we were and still are in a collective trauma. And due to our circumstances and our the current systems that we exist in have been forced to kind of continue to perform like marionettes with zero control of our strings, like continue to perform like everything is okay. Not that I, I feel 100% that I've done that. It's not like I've ignored the pandemic or anything, but it's still something that we have not completely processed. And if you can't process it, can't heal it, tampoco, you're like, <laughs> it's just trauma that exists inside your body. So to like exist through trauma, not be able to process it. And in the midst of that, be doing on a daily basis, some activity where you feel antagonized over and over again, it's leading to burnout. So that, that that's the kind of like name I figured out for what's been happening with me emotionally in regards to advocacy and storytelling online. I'm like, this is so vulnerable. And I'm like, and I'm still not, we talk about strength. 
I know I have strength. I know that I can experience these things and come back, but there is a sense of burnout. There is a sense of like, you're really, you're really wearing down the muscles that I had, (laughs) you know? And I think sometimes I don't, I don't do as much as you do on social media. Just like I've chosen to watch less of the news or to get my news in different ways, particularly since the pandemic. And, um, but I completely understand the issue of burnout and, and also the fatigue and the pain from hearing people say the same things over and over again and realizing that there isn't a quick fix to get people to see us as we see ourselves, which is why I think working with other disabled individuals and other like-minded people is so very important. Mm -hmm. But I want to thank you very much for sharing your time with us and sharing who you are. And we have, I think, only touched part of the surface of who you are. But it's very clear that um, people do need to be looking you looking at you and your work in social media and learning from you. So thank you so much. And um, don't burn out. <laughs> we're, here for, we're trying. We're here to prevent that. We're, we're trying to, to do our best with self-care and, and watch out for our mental health. And that's um, all I can really ask of other people as well. I, th- I want to, I want to share that as like part of my experience is is, is for other people to kind of like check in with themselves and see where they're at and if they feel happy and safe with what they're doing and if action is possible to change that, what what can be done. And other than that, yeah, I just hope that one day things will be a lot more peaceful and I'm glad that we have these conversations. Hopefully they're part of the machine. It's a, it's a cog in the machine to, to make that world happen. So I'm really grateful that we had this conversation today. Thank you. And thank you all for joining. And we'll give you some links. So if you haven't followed Annie's work, you can. And you'll get a lot of joy and laughter and earnestness uh, by listening to her. Thank you. You've been tuning into The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guest was Annie Segarra. Be sure to follow Annie on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok at Annie Eleni. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Huaren. And the outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective. And follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective.